The Bob Murphy Show, episode 125. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. And this one, this is an unusual episode. My guest is Matt Mahai, who is somebody I've known for years from the Mises Institute, He was a fellow there when I was a professor teaching there. Um, He got his PhD in economics from the University of Wrocław in Poland. Um, He's founder of the Polish Mises Institute of Economic Education, and he's a five-time research fellow of the Mises Institute. And when he was there, he won some prizes because he was the best. He he did the best in the oral competition that we have at the end of the week at Mises University. Um, He's also the author of Capitalism, Socialism, and Property Rights, Why Market Socialism Cannot Substitute the Market. He's also author of Money, Interest, and the Structure of Production, Resolving Some Puzzles in the Theory of Capital. And finally, he's the author of The Rise and Fall of the First Galactic Empire, Star Wars, and Political Philosophy. So what we're going to be talking about today is those latter two books. So the first half of the discussion, we're going to focus on the structure of production and capital theory and Matt's views on that. And then the second half, we're going to focus on the Star Wars. All right, so we're going to do the broccoli first and then the dessert. But really, it's, it's, uh, it's not frivolous. I'll put it that way. All right, even though it sounds like, oh, we're talking about philosophy and political philosophy and Star Wars. It, it's really good stuff. And his, his book is, is excellent. And so uh, you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 125 to see links and how you can get that stuff. Let me just, before we jump into the interview, let me mention two things. First of all, the interview with Matt, it's on YouTube, and I broke it up into two sections, right? So there's the full thing, but then I also uploaded just our discussion on the structure of production and just our discussion on Star Wars, in case you want to look at those separately. The other thing is, let me just briefly talk a little bit about what's called the reswitching controversy in terms of capital and interest theory, because that's one of the elements or episodes that Matt and I talk about. And so I didn't want to bog down the interview. So if you don't want to hear me discuss this right now, just go ahead and fast forward a little bit. But for those of you who want the context, so remember in the neoclassical tradition, you would justify things like, um, you know, why do, why do workers get wages? You say, oh, well, the wage and equilibrium is equal to the marginal product of labor and labor carries disutility, right? It's not fun to work. Leisure is, is a good and so labor is, is onerous. And so that's why it makes sense and it's justified that the worker gets paid wages. Because again, you're productive. The labor is physically productive and the worker needs to be compensated because it's, it's not fun to work. Okay, so that's why the worker gets paid wages. He's contributing something and he has to be compensated for his disutility. Okay, so then the question is, well, why do capitalists earn interest income? And so here, 
one of the standard answers coming out of the neoclassical tradition that Bumbavik helped found. I'm not saying Bumbavik should be called a neoclassical, but he, his work on capital interest was involved in this approach in the early 20th century was to say, oh, well, because in equilibrium, interest equals the marginal product of capital. And so that's why, you know, capital is productive. You can have more stuff with capital than without. And interest, they thought, was the payment for that factor service. And people don't like to wait, right? It's, it's onerous to wait. People are impatient. And so it seemed like it was pretty analogous to, to labor, right? That the capitalist who injects his capital into an enterprise is making it more physically productive. So there's more output available. And the capitalist has to postpone consumption if he's going to do that. So, you know, he, he provides the means to compensate him by enlarging production. And we have to compensate him here. He's going to require that compensation because it's onerous to, to have to postpone consumption, right? So you can see how that's kind of analogous to labor to, to justify why is it the capitalist should earn an interest income in the market economy, just like why is it the worker should earn wage income? Okay. So, th by the way, there are problems with that. I'm, I'm by no means endorsing the analysis. There's, there's things that are wrong with it. But here, I'm not going to get bogged down on what's wrong with it. All right? And I would just refer you to my three-part series on capital and interest theory. So if you go to the show notes page here, bobmurphyshow.com slash 125, I will give the links to those previous episodes if you want to hear me spell out what's wrong with what I just said. <laughs> okay? But in terms of the reswitching controversy... The uh, critics of the neoclassical synthesis who were coming at it from a, what nowadays we would call a progressive left-wing perspective. I don't know how they identified themselves back then. I, I don't know that they would all be socialists. I think some of them would have been, but I don't know if they all would have been. But people like Schraffa and Joan Robinson, like these are the people I have in mind. And they said that, no, this is a fallacy it's it's not the case that when capitalists save and accumulate that that makes pr the production structure more roundabout and therefore more productive. And so interest is the compensation payment to the capitalists for making our structure more productive, right? Because it's more roundabout. And they got that language from Bumbavik. That was part of how Bumbavik looked at things, all right? And so the reswitching controversy or the, the possibility of reswitching blew a hole, at least in the naive formulation of that defense of interest payments. And it went like this. You can come up with production technologies such that at a high rate of interest, so, so let me back up. You can imagine two different ways of producing something, like technique A and technique B, different ways of using like labor input to make some item. And, and maybe, you know, technique A involves a little bit of labor early on and then a lot of labor later on and technique B is vice versa, okay? And the point is you can, it might be contrived perhaps, but you can come up with an example and Paul Samuelson did this. And so I'll link all this in the show notes page, folks, if you want to see it spelled out, where at a high rate of interest, technique A is preferable. Then you start lowering the interest rate and at some point, technique B becomes more profitable, and you keep lowering the interest rate, and then technique A once again becomes more profitable. And so that's what they mean by re-switching, is they're saying as the interest rate varies across this large spread, 
it switches from one technique being profitable to the other, and then it re-switches back again as you continue to lower the interest rate. So you might say, what the heck does that have to do with the justification of interest income? Well, because if Bumbavik is right, and there's ways that we can classify which production structure is more roundabout than the other, and the idea is that capital accumulation means more roundaboutness in the structure of production, means things are more physically productive, and then that's why the capitalists earn interest income is because, you know, their role in fostering this greater roundaboutness. By the way, Bobber wouldn't necessarily say that. I'm just saying this is where the, the roundaboutness stuff came from, is from him. If that, so if that's going to be true, then what, they, what would have to happen, so, so the allegation goes, is that as capitalists save and accumulate more, and that pushes down the rate of interest, entrepreneurs then switch to the more roundabout production technique, right, led by market forces. And so that's the sense in which, oh, yeah, so as the capitalists engage in this socially beneficial habit of saving and accumulating, that lowers interest rates, and that's good for society at large because it leads the entrepreneurs to switch to the more roundabout techniques. Okay, so the re-switching examples show that that story can't be true in general. Because however you want to quantify roundaboutness, and that's part of the problem is it's not obvious once you leave really simplistic examples, looking at two production techniques, which one's more roundabout than the other, it's not obvious a lot of times. But the point is, if you got A and B, and as the interest rate falls, you know, the interest rate starts at a high rate and one of them is more productive or profitable, you lower the interest rate, it switches so that the other one is, well, now you got to say that that other one must be more roundabout. But then if you keep lowering the interest rate, oh, it switches back so that the, the first one is now more profitable. Well, now it's like, well, well, they can't both be more roundabout than each other. That's, that can't be. So these types of examples show that in general, the standard story by which some people tried to justify or apologize for the market's payment of interest income to capitalists can't be valid. And so then because of that, people like Shrafa would go on to say, oh, really interest isn't about, it's not a marginal uh, factor payment, you know, based on marginal principles, the way, you know, wages are due to marginal productivity of labor. And they would say, no, it's, it's based on power relations, right? The capitalists have more clout and that's why they're able to, you know, wring interest payments out of everybody else to like skim off the top of total output each period. The capitalists take their cut but the principles governing how much they get paid are not normal principles of the market economy the way workers get paid their wages, right? So that's the idea. All right, so that's, I think I've given you enough to know the context for when Matt and I end up talking about this episode in the history of economic thought. So that, that debate happened like in the 1950s and maybe early 60s. Okay, so without further ado, here is my discussion with Matt Mahai. Well, Matt, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Hello, Bob. Thank you for having me on. So this is interesting. You're like two guests in one here because you have a very important, interesting, path-breaking book on capital theory. And you also have a very interesting book on the political philosophy in the Star Wars saga, namely, in the, or specifically in the prequels. So I think we will cover both while I got you here. We'll do the broccoli first, and then we'll do the fun stuff afterwards. So we're going to start with the capital theory stuff. So let me, just to motivate this, I will read from your introduction. I have it pulled up here. Oops, there it is. That's the book. Yeah, yeah, I should hold the book up there. So 
Money, Interest, and the Structure of Production is the book. And here, let me just read from your introduction to sort of where you motivate what you're doing, the scope of this thing. Say, the central proposition concerns the decisive role of the production structure, which unfortunately has been forgotten in the state of contemporary economics. I argue that models of interest and monetary markets will necessarily be deficient in portraying the market process if they do not refer to the production structure. I plan to show that the notion of the production structure applies to various fields of economic theory, starting from purely theoretical models through more empirical yet still largely theoretical generalizations and ending with empirical works on potential output and, quote, optimal monetary policies. Each section is devoted to major puzzles in capital theory that could potentially be resolved by reviving the concept of the production structure. And by the way, folks, I omitted, like you had things parenthetically there, and I, I skipped over those just for brevity. So there's your central proposition, what you're doing in the book. So why don't I pause here and let you elaborate on that, and then I think we should, as, I, as we discussed before we started recording here, Matt, hit the first two applications you do. So again, you're, you've got this idea that this is what economists have been missing, and then you're going to go through and show them, look at all these various debates or episodes in the history of economic thought, why if you'd had this concept more at your fingertips, you, you could have made more progress. Right. Now, in the, uh, the book consists of two parts. One part is microeconomic in nature, and the second part is macroeconomic in nature. Now, in the microeconomic part, I mostly play and discuss with uh, very, very theoretical models. And we have the famous re-switching debate, about which you want to talk about. Uh, but this re-switching debate is more theoretical. Like, I don't see a lot of and this is this has been admitted also during during the the switching debate that it's not very very relevant empirically. However, it's really fun uh, to reach out and and analyze the puzzles associated with it. Uh, what will be more interesting, I think, for people uh, uh, devoting their attention to macroeconomics, monetary policy, and so on, will be the second part. Of my book, which is which is I well, it's not longer. I think yeah, the length is sort of similar, but in the second part, personally, I think that the most valuable, if you, if you can say what you find most valuable in your work, but I think most valuable and interesting work will be chapter four on potential output, because in macroeconomics, in uh, mainstream macroeconomics, you have this notion of potential output which is not only relevant for the beginning of macro modeling, but it's also very, very relevant for monetary policy, uh, especially when you look into the nature of crisis and, and in the nature of slowdowns and booms and busts, you will always see this notion of potential output. right? And despite sophisticated modeling that you have in mainstream macroeconomics, it's based on one dimensional concept of potential output, which basically means that either you are I don't know, you, you need 5% more of real output to reach potential output or 10% more or 15% more. It's just one dimension, one number. Whereas thanks to capital theory that we have, especially developed by Austrian economists, uh, something on a theoretical level discussed in the first part of my book, thanks to it, you can understand that even uh, like you don't have to throw out the idea of potential output uh, totally but you cannot have it as a one-dimensional variable, as a one-dimensional number, because output is existing at various stages, and at those stages, companies are interconnected with each other. And you cannot just say that, okay, we just need to produce like 5% more or 10% more in total when you look at the GDP. Mm -hmm. 
because what matters is this heterogenization of the production structure, the fact that those firms have to be coordinated in some way, and it cannot be reflected by just one variable. Okay, great. So I jotted a note. Will, since you just said you thought the more important thing was was that element, why don't we go through what I had planned on asking you about the micro stuff, partly because that's what I know, and so I didn't have to prepare as much. So I was just being lazy <laughs> as an interviewer. And then we'll we'll circle back before we go on. So the bridge between capital theory and Darth Vader will be potential output. All right. And then um, I think no one on earth has ever uttered that sentence before. So why don't we, first of all, let's not assume anything. What do you mean by production structure, particularly, you know, in the context of the Austrian school? What, what does that mean exactly? Well, we mean that production is organized in stages. We have higher order goods and we have lower order goods. We have goods that are earlier in the production structure, which are closer to primary factors of production. And then we have all the later stages of production, which are closer to consumption, which are already made up of goods that have been manufactured by using other goods and labor in the past. And uh, then you can draw, uh, we have this famous notion of Hayekian triangle, although perhaps the better term would be Hayekian trapezoid, especially developed in, in Rothbard's book. So we can actually depict various companies and connections between sto- those companies at the level of annual production, because that's another thing. Uh, that, that, that's another thing worth developing. Like I wanted to develop that in my book. I didn't really have time. But another thing to be developed is that you should have actually three dimensions in there, which is you just have the triangle, the trapezoid, whereas you could put the third dimension because this is a annual production in there or just just like a flow that exists through one period of time. And you don't have fixed capital goods there that are used up throughout the multiple series of those processes. But that's something to be developed, I guess, later on. Okay, so maybe it might help some listeners because I think if they don't know what the foil is, like what we're reacting against, they don't really understand because a lot of what we're saying might seem obvious. Okay, that was so. So yeah, so main, let me just say this. So like in standard, like the workhorse models, like when I went to NYU for grad school and the stuff we learned, I mean, it was, there was a production function and it was like F taking an input of K and L, like with a subscript of T to show you which time period it was. So it was like, oh, the economy has a technology function where you plug in, the total amount of capital stock and the total amount of labor hours that period, and then out comes the pile of output. And then society needs to determine of that output, how much do we consume and how much do we save and reinvest? And then that affects what KT plus one is going to be. So there, you know, there, there's, it's just, there's a pile of capital goods. It's all the same thing. In fact, the capital and consumption good are the same thing. And it's a very simple thing. Whereas you're talking about the structure, meaning like multiple stages like oh there's there's mining and manufacturing and wholesale and retail so it's 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 a bit more realistic in the yep. austrian approach and the and the point is just even moving slightly towards that level of realism has a lot of implications oh yeah one of them is the importance of entrepreneurs uh there is a great clip on youtube you could find with elon musk when he was a guest at rogan show the rogan show mm-hmm. where he was addressing socialists and he was talking about uh, production, that many socialists are having this type of, well, he didn't call them socialists, but that's what he meant. And that's the title, I think, of the clip, where he says that you have this simple notion that production is somehow, sit, it's like sitting on a plant, right? We have this uh, notion of cruzonia plant uh, mm-hmm. in, in neoclassical econom- economics, that you just you just sit on those factors of production and they are 
uh, inherently productive. I mean, things just produced by themselves. And then all you have to do is just to divide those goods. And, and Musk is really making fun of it in a very, very easy way. Um, but that's actually, that's the same thing he has in mind is that, you know, mm. companies are not, they are not sitting on capital, which begets profits or produces income automatically. Like you have to actually allocate it in the production structure, uh, to make it fitting with the rest of uh, the industries and to make it profitable and, and productive for the final consumer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mises wrote a lot about that too, that the socialists had this idea that, you know, to dispossess the capitalists, like all the, the bourgeoisie do, are going to their offices and sit at a desk and you know look at reports and cash checks or whatever. When he was saying, no, like the real entrepreneurial issue is should should that factory be built and where should it be built? That sort of thing. Not once it's up and running and you go in and you tweak how many widgets do we produce? Do we bring on a third shift today? That that sort of thing. That those are actually you know trivial details compared to the bigger questions of should we open up a new factory in the first place? That sort of thing. Or even the decision not to sell your stocks. I mean, it's also an important decision in the secondary market. Mm-hmm. I mean, influence, it's actually influencing real world allocations, the fact that you don't sell your stocks. And it sends signals uh, about where capital should be allocated and who should get it. So, so even when you, quote unquote, do nothing, like you're a passive rentier, mm-hmm. uh, as Keynes envision, and envision it, it's still an important job to do, not to sell your stocks. Right. Right. Yeah, that that matters. If you refrain from selling, history unfolds one way, and if you do sell, then it affects the future. So, okay. So, so your thesis again, or your proposition for this book is keep economists historically, except for the Austrians, notably, haven't really had a well-defined concept of the production structure. That they've used models that gloss over it or make it very simplified, and that has implications. And then you're going to go through and illustrate the ramifications of this. So your chapter one is on the interest as a factor payment, right? So there's just, again, for the listeners, there's uh, payments to the the factors of production. So like wages are what labor gets. Rent is what land factors get. So not just realist physical land, but also like if you own buildings or things, you know, you could call that rent. Or if you, if you have um, own coal mines, things like that. And then interest, to, you know, historically in the in the old classical, so they say, oh, interest or profits, what goes to capital. Now we've refined that after the subjectivist revolution, and it's more okay. Interest per se goes, to, you know, to the the time element, and the pure profit goes to entrepreneurship, that sort of thing. So you're saying now, Matt, that that debate over is interest, what is interest a payment for, or is it just exploitation, that sort of thing. You're saying the, the people arguing in there could have benefited from this notion of the production structure? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's sort of a starting point for mm. understanding the production structure. I would say it's something I wanted to discuss before going into the idea of the production structure because okay. I think it's really important because this is the price that actually directs the resources within the production structure. And this, this first chapter is, I would say, um, is mostly just research on history of economic thought where I go through... Uh, the, the classical, classical, neoclassical thinkers and classical Austrians ending with most important Austrians, modern ones, uh, the ones sitting in front of me right now in front of the camera included. So, uh, but, 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 but I, but I thought it's, it's, it's really, it, it is something that we should have in mind. And I really like your conclusion that we can treat like putting all those debates aside about what causes interest to be positive or not. 
I think what you do uh, when you treat the interest rate as a price is just sufficient. Uh, mm. Like, you don't have to, like, go into... We can. I, I'm, I'm happy for it. We can discuss psychological factors like Bombaver did. We can discuss praxeological factors like Mises did. We can even discuss some forms of productive factors like Hayek did. And, and to some extent, Bombaverk also. Like, I, I don't have a problem with this, but 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 I think it's not crucial. Like, I mean, to grasp uh, the importance of production structure and the importance of market-based interest rates. Like, you don't have to go that deep. Like, you, you don't have to reduce them to something sort of more fundamental outside of the monetary sphere. I think what you do is quite. I mean, it looks plain and easy, but I think it's really important because we can just stop at this. That you know. Interest rate has a price, and and every price has a function, and that's it. And we can just mm -hmm. start from here. Okay, so, and I appreciate that. And I, uh, what I did when I got your book, the first thing is I went to the index and looked up my name, and I saw there wasn't. It's funny. David Gordon says he does the same thing when he gets a book. He, he looks up Gordon. Yeah. Everyone does it. Just yeah, not he doesn't. He doesn't look up Murphy. He looks up Gordon. Um, <laughs> so, so but what's interesting here? So let me have you explain this because prima facie, it would seem that. I would have thought you you didn't like what I said there. So let me explain why. So here's here's a quote actually from your chapter. You say, what was the, so this is near the end after you've gone through and summarized, okay, this is what, you know, the classical people say, this is what Irving Fisher says, you know, Knight, Clark, the Austrians. And you say, what was the characteristic feature of the early marginalist discussions of interest? A focus on finding a fundamental phenomenon outside of monetary and market transactions, a phenomenon deeply rooted in something inherent in the nature of man or reality, a phenomenon that would not be imminently linked to existing institutions such as money or private property. And, and I agree with you, that is what they were doing there. So they were making interest out to be the, a, quote, real phenomenon. And you could conceive of interest, like Robinson Crusoe would, would you know, theoretically have it or implicitly have it in his island economy, a socialist commonwealth you know, they would have some analog of that if, if interest is the return, either whether you thought it was the marginal product of capital and has something to do with the productivity of capital, the way in the you know more mainstream neoclassical view, or even in the Austrian school, oh, it's it's due to time preference, right? Interest is due to time preference. Both of those, the, the reason I, in my dissertation, rejected those, and I thought Bumbaver, as much he's my favorite economist, I still thought he, he made a mistake at step one, where he said interest was had something to do with the value difference between uh, present and future goods. Because I was saying, look at it, and all this stuff, you read me, money's not in there at all. And interest, duh, it's step one. What is interest? It has It's a payment for the exchange of present for future money. Or as I said in the quote you have for me, you can view it as the, the rental payment for renting money. If you want to look at it that way, you could say there it's more than that, or that's not, but clearly that's a true statement. And yet all these theories, including the Austrians, divorce money from it. And they said, no, no, interest, you know, money's just an afterthought. Let's look at interest as something to do with real goods and, you know, present apples trading for future apples, that kind of thing. So since your proposition, this thing is to focus on the production structure, that actually kind of surprised me. I, so, but you're, so you're saying, yes, the production structure is this physical thing is important, but what you're saying, we also can't lose sight of its connection to monetary transactions. Yeah. Yeah. Like I didn't want to lose sight from it. Exactly. And, uh, and then when I go into the reswitching thing, you will see that I dislike focusing on real equations, on equations on uh, based on real products in those uh, in those debates, reswitching debates. Like I prefer to take monetary prices there. 
Okay, yeah. So why don't we jump into that then? So as I mentioned, you met the audience will have, if they elected to listen to it, will have, I gave a crash course on that, just laying out the basics. So you're saying that, well, well go ahead. So what we, we they've, I've summarized for them what the standard positions were and how, you know, the debate was over. They, in their minds, the debate was over whether interest was a just justified payment for some service that the capitalists were providing that, you know, oh, switching to a more roundabout technique allowed for greater production. And so that was the justification that, oh, we need to pay the capitalists that because look, we're getting more output over time. And you're, you're saying what? That, that, that those, those debates were too sterile looking just at like yeah, production I'm, structure? That's the, well, that's the consequence. Like if you see uh, that, that, that's, that, that's part of the reason why I wanted to settle the interest issue. Right, mm-hmm. because your simple solution is just is just like you can just look at them and say, who cares? I mean, interest is a payment for something that is traded in the market, and it has value, and you have bidders for it, and you have suppliers of this thing that leads to creation or to leads to existence of interest, and that's it. And and if you meddle with it, either through central banking policy or through uh, uh, nationalization plans, uh, expropriation of private property owners, and so on. If you mess with it, you will have similar or even more important consequences as you have when you meddle with any kind of price. And this is something you can just say by doing a step-by-step analysis of the price system. And you don't have to reduce this price to something which is outside of the market sphere, like like it is often done. Like You don't have to say, oh, interest is a payment for time. Oh, interest is a payment for impatience. Oh, interest is a payment for whatever that was, for productivity of land, if you're a physiocrat mm-hmm. or something, right? Mm-hmm. Or, uh, or more around the higher productivity, more, more roundabout more processes. Roundabout, yeah, right. Yeah. That, that was another one you wanted to mention. Exactly. So more roundabout process of production, because then if someone shows you uh, like it was the case with the switching models, uh, that you can have this roundabout as changing in one way and then interest first going up and then going down and then going up again, then it means, okay, so there is no monotonic relation in here. So you cannot really say that this is determining fully the rate of interest. You cannot say that if, if this changes either way and this changes not in the same way as we want it to change because of the simple model, and there is a problem that apparently interest does not perform this function, right? Whereas you are completely immune to this type of criticism because you're saying like, look, look folks, it doesn't matter. The point is that it's just uh, market pricing and, and that's what's relevant. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's, that's good. <laughs> Can I ask you, I'm just curious. So notwithstanding all of my complaints against Mbavrik and how I thought he got off on the wrong foot. I mean, there, to me, there's something obvious there and it, you, you get where he's coming from that, there's a sense in which society A, where they don't save anything and they live hand to mouth versus society B, where they every year out of you know their, their produce, they save and reinvest a lot of that output and they accumulate more tools and equipment per capita and they have more intermediate goods and things like that. There's a sense in which, okay, now their labor 10 years from now is going to be more physically productive per unit of time. And there's, you know, it seems like there's something there where, you know, Bavar was talking about the more roundabout processes are more physically productive and that's one way of gauging what's the point of saving and accumulation is that even though yeah you can't come up with an airtight definition of what's more roundabout that that leads to problems i mean it still seems like like if i'm going to explain something to high school class about why should people save i'm going to start with the robinson crusoe model and just explain that to them like so they can kind of see it in a simple setting 
So what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, I mean, progress or development is always the result of being properly future-oriented, right? And what is important, and you, you see it reflected in all various cultures. You, you also see it reflected in anthropology. Like, to whichever society you will go to, you always hear those statements about, you know, what you're supposed to eat today, tomorrow, what, we're, what you're supposed to do tomorrow, do today, and so on, so on. So these types of, uh, or that savings is a virtue, meaning that thinking about the future and providing for the future is a virtue. So, so I guess, yes, in a way, uh, th when you think about the future, your plans may look more roundabout, right? So mm -hmm. in, in this broad general view, I would say it is helpful. But at the same time, like it doesn't, even, even Rothbard saw this in, in many economy in state, right? Where he has this subchapter about how to perceive this roundaboutness, right? It's, that's uh, sometimes that, that he even tries to make an argument that when you search for new oil fields, you're somehow, and, and you try to do it for the shortest amount of time, you're still reaching out for more roundabout methods, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you, you, you have to put a specific assumptions, very rigid, ceteris paribus assumptions on what you mean by reaching out for always more roundabout methods of production. And once you put all those conditions in place in the model, then tautologically you will, yeah, you, you will say, yeah, I reached the conclusion which is correct. And this is what I mean by roundabout. But then when you go into the dynamic settings, right? Um, it's not, it's not the term that I particularly like. I think you can defend it in some way if you put much effort into it, but why do it? I mean, mm -hmm. if just explain, do the Occam's razor, right? Just if you can explain the process without relying on it, even when you just use it loosely, it's fine. Just like the way you presented it. Sure. Let's mm -hmm. use it that way. But to make it like hundred percent applicable in all cases, you have to do a little bit of acrobatics and complicate the stuff a bit. And I realized this during the seminars when I try to explain to the people who are not familiar with the Austrian economics, who are intelligent laymen. And then, you know, when I tell them about roundabout processes, they, they always respond. But you see, entrepreneurs always try to do everything in the shortest amount of time possible, right? Mm -hmm. uh, not, not the longer one, right? But then you will say, okay, but longer depends relatively and so on and so on. Yeah, but they want to produce it faster. Like when you were producing tables 100 years ago, it took, it took longer. Now it's going faster, right? Yes, so there, I mean, I, there, there is a technical point where even Bambavrik stressed that more roundabout is not the same thing as saying more time-consuming. Like it means that you don't directly approach your goal, but you do something intermediate first. But, but yeah, typically speaking, because of the selection bias, the, if there were a more roundabout, shorter process, you would do that right away. So that generally in equilibrium to have a more roundabout also is the same thing as expanding it. Yeah, I mean, um, sorry, let's interrupt you one more, one more thing about mm. it. Um, you know, what I really like about Austrian economics, I think, is that this type of reasoning, 80 to even 90% of it, can be easily explained to intelligent laymen without really going with mental gymnastics and redefinitions and so on and so on, like you have in the neoclassical framework. Mm -hmm. So, but this roundabout issue is actually, doesn't fit that picture, right? This is something, in order to defend it, you have to do some forms of uh, gymnastics. So why why really bother? Well, let me 
partly just so we can have some clash here to, <laughs> to not be patting each other on the back. But let me push back against that, because that, that, that's what I was trying to get at it before. To me, it seems like what Bombavik was getting at with that is pretty obvious. Like, And that's what I'm saying. If I were explaining to like a high school class, like for example, I don't know what the commentary is where you are, but here there's lots of op-eds and people wringing their hands over, oh no, Americans are saving the most they've saved since 1974 or whatever. The, you know, like this because of the lockdowns and whatever, Americans haven't been spending much. So the measured savings rate is really high. And so there's a lot of Keynesian analysis coming out complaining about that and saying, this is terrible. We got to have spending or else we're in trouble. So I'm saying, if I'm talking to a regular crowd to show them, no, here's why saving actually is a good thing and it doesn't make us poor. Like just to talk about Robinson Crusoe and okay, he's just picking, you know, 10 coconuts a day. What if he saves two of them a day and builds up a stockpile and then five days from now, he can go build some nets to catch fish with while he eats the saved coconuts. You see how that helps and blah, 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 blah. Or, you know, Japan saves more than the United States does. You see how over time they're going to blah, blah, blah. And people understand that. And whereas with this reswitching, it seems like the problem, like if, if some, you know, Paul Samuelson or someone wants to come along and say why that's too simplistic, they have to come up with this contrived example to show reswitching occurring. So to me, it would seem like, no, the real common man on the street stuff is saving is good. And you got to be more sophisticated to realize, oh, no, there's a paradox of thrift. And after we all try to save too much, we're going to impoverish each other. So consider, how do you feel about that? <laughs> consider me convinced. That. <laughs> okay. You got me there. Okay, so let me, uh, what do I want to So I guess the, do, do you think though that there is, so since you're talking about, you know, the, the resolution with this stuff is to focus just directly on it, that, hey, interest is a payment, you know, it, it involves like transferring money and things like, and that's a voluntary transfer of property. And if, if the government screws with that, that's going to mess things up. But do you also think that there is some tie to the real production structure? Of the monetary payments, right? Like what what investors are doing, like in interest in credit markets and things like that. Do oh, you yeah. still want to tie that to this this intertemporal production structure? Uh, you know, I don't think. I, I think there is, uh, and this is this is what I because I generally agree that under the specific circumstances in the theoretical model, you can show the so-called switching to appear. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is possible that that, that that it does happen. It's also possible that you can envision an equilibrium model in which lowered interest rates is leading to shorter uh, process of production in the production structure. You can actually design, like using the exact model that Rothbard was using, you can actually design using a budget limitations uh, using uh, the same uh, type of approach, meaning uh, saying that uh, present factors, uh, the, the, the owners of factors of production are are demanding present money, and owners of capital are demanding future money, and you can do the similar type of exchange as Rothbard is doing, and you can actually, while lowering the interest rates, you can actually make the process of production shorter under some b- little bit bizarre, but still circumstances. It is possible. But at the same time, even though it's possible in the theoretical model, like you have to uh, put that model into empirical perspective. And the empirical perspective is that once you have lowered interest rates and capital uh, owners are saving more money, they are investing it uh, in capital equipment. I mean, that's the idea in general. 
because this exception that I just mentioned would be possible, for example, if capital owners, for some reason, decided to just bid for wages, and that's it, or or hire more uh, workers in uh, in the earlier factors of in the earlier stages of production for some reason, right? Uh, it's not like completely impossible. You could do that, right? And under those circumstances, you can actually create examples in which production processes are shorter. But this is not how things happen in real uh, life, usually. When you have owners of capital investing money, they usually do it to build capital goods and not to just bid for uh, uh, workers who have similar productivity or the same productivity and not just move workers from uh, the consumer sector into the earlier stages of production. They usually invest in capital goods and expand capital production. And once you have this thing, lowered interest rates and more savings will result in longer, in longer processes of production as it is depicted in, in Rothbard's and Hayek's framework. So I would say there is a tie, but it's not like 100% a priori. It's, I would say, 99 mm-hmm. or 98% a priori. Okay, so let me ask you this, and then maybe this will be the segue into the potential output stuff. So are you, the the standard Austrian business cycle theory that Mises developed and Hayek refined goes that, okay, the banking system, they inject unbacked fiduciary media into the credit markets that pushes interest rates below, call it the natural rate, if you will, or the neutral rate or the rate of originary corresponding to originary interest rate. And then that leads entrepreneurs to engage in mail investments. There's not enough total savings to finance them all. And so then a crisis is inevitable once that gets kicked off. Are you okay with that? Or do you think that, again, that's like a fable that we'll know because we can come up with theoretical examples where that wouldn't happen. So let's not rest our business cycle theory on that foundation. Sure. Uh, I would say, as Austrians do usually say, it depends what is the channel of monetary transmission. That is, when you have lowered interest rates, the question is where the lowered interest rates are channeling capital. Like in, in, in reality. And this is, this is the thing you always have to inquiry, even using the classical Austrian business cycle theory. Because when you look into Mises, uh, I think it was Mises, right? Somewhere he discussed, um, yeah, he did. He called it simple inflation. When you have uh, credit and monetary expansion that goes into, for example, consumer sector or government spending, or let's mm-hmm. say peace, you have monetary expansion and, and money created by the banking sector is being used to buy Greek debt and then goes into Greek budget, and then is being spent on wages of uh, the people working in the uh, public sector, then you will just have a, a sort of like government boom, but you will not have a classical boom-bust cycle, cycle as it is depicted by the Austrian theory. So you have to look at the monetary transmission channel. And I think the classical Austrian business cycle theory can easily stand even when you drop the idea of longer process or, or elongation of the process of production, because you can talk about something that Walter Block said at interest rate sensitivity of capital industries. And if the monetary creation and money creation is going into the capital sector, like you don't really have to point to the specific sector and say, oh, this is longer process and this is shorter process. If it goes, for example, to highly industrialized and capitalized industries that are using heterogeneous capital, which is being used up over the longer period of time, for the next 10 or 15 years, then you have a perfect demonstration of the Austrian business cycle theory and it still stands despite the change, despite the fact that we can change the model like we just discussed. Because then it means that capital is frozen in form of 
heterogeneous capital, which cannot be easily reallocated during the change of preferences phase or during the, 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 the bust phase and so forth. So, right. So, so yeah, I think it easily stands and defends itself despite the possible reshaping of the nar- narration about the capital structure. Okay. So let me try to repeat back and paraphrase what I think you said. So you're, you're okay with the general story that for certain types of inflation, particularly if they worked through the credit markets and the way that new money gets into the economy is primarily in the beginning through loans, especially to business owners who then invest in capital goods, that can screw things up. That makes the production structure into an unsustainable configuration as opposed to a more sustainable one that we think would happen under a more free market approach. But we don't need to say, oh, what happened is the production structure was trying to be pushed into a, a more roundabout process, even though there wasn't enough savings to justify that, or it was getting funneled into longer processes when really consumers and their time preferences only wanted to fund shorter processes. Is that, is that what you're saying? Like, we don't need to get there and, and label it as such. It's just, more, let's say it's not correct or it's unsustainable. Well, I mean, I have a problem with, with the term elongation. That's it. I don't mm-hmm. have a problem with saying that it goes into the earlier stages of production and investing in more heterogeneous capital goods. Because this is what I think, this is what I believe to be the core of the Austrian business cycle theory, actually. I don't Mm -hmm. think processes are just getting longer. I mean, think about it. Let's assume that processes are getting longer, but the earlier stages of production are homogeneous and are using homogeneous capital that can be very easily re-employed in the other parts of the production structure. Mm -hmm. Even using the classical ABCT framework, I mean, the the bust would not be such a huge thing, right? Because then you can just easily reallocate capital. So what I believe at the, what is at the heart, at the core of the Austrian business cycle theory and theory of socialism also is the heterogeneous capital aspect. And Mm -hmm. before you go into the highly equipped and highly capitalized industries at the earlier stages, then you will see more and more heterogeneous capital goods. And as they are more heterogeneous, it's really hard to, you know, move those machines or, or, or mm-hmm. any types of half products that you have from one sector into the other. Okay, great. So this, yeah, what you're, what you're saying here, I noticed that when I was at NYU in particular, and I was trying to explain, like, some of my classmates, you know, they were curious, like, what is this Austrian colloquium you go to? And, what, and I was trying to explain Austrian business cycle theory to them. And I realized with their framework, they literally couldn't even comprehend it because as we alluded to in the beginning of this episode here, Matt, the model they had in mind was that there's a certain pile of output that comes. It's all the same thing. Like what just one can, you know, output goods and then a portion of it gets saved and the rest gets consumed and the portion that gets saved gets added to the the capital stock. You know, there's depreciation. So KT, you got a number, it shrinks to a lower number. And then if the investment is higher than depreciation, that means KT plus one is, is higher than KT was if it's lower than KT plus one. So it's all the same thing. It's just a pile of stuff. And then in that framework, you can't have mail investment. The, the, the worst that could happen is that you would have people save more than they should have according to the utility function. So they might, they might have lower utility, but there wouldn't be a boom bust cycle. It would just mean, oh, next period, we got more machines. So now our labor is more productive because we save more than we wanted to or that, than we should have. Yeah. And so, so, so your point is that with the heterogeneous capital and people making t- – so it's like uh, the, the simple example I, I say to people is something like 
if the economy, let's say we saved and invested more and all they did was produce a bunch of hammers, but but they didn't produce an, a bunch more nails. And so then next year now, all the carpenters are walking around with a bunch of hammers and there's no nails to work with. That doesn't make them more productive, even though, oh, there was a bigger capital stock because it's not the right stuff and the structure doesn't interlock. So does this tie into like what you were talking about, potential output? Maybe we can switch now to that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is this is one of the consequences. Like if, if let's say it's the early 90s and you have a perfect boom uh, that is being caused by lowered interest rates and you have huge investments in Kodak factory, for example. Right? I mean, imagine all this specific heterogeneous equipment used in Kodak factory, right? Thinking about, you know, expanding output and producing more and more and more. And then in the first years of this boom, you will see huge increases in GDP and huge increases in real output. And you might even have some forms of modeling that will completely say that will, that will, that will actually say that, uh, you know, this is not like this is this is actually reaching out for the potential output, right? So potential output mm-hmm. here and then real output reaching potential output because we have this, these lowered interest rates and we have employment of capital. Uh, which is homogeneous in the model or quasi, it's actually quasi homogeneous in the model uh, in all those DSG mod, uh, DSGE models. So, uh, I mean, in, in, in with the usage of this simple one-dimensional concept, you will not see the potential mal investment being manifested there because you are just focused, as you just said, as on, on the economy based, on the economy that is mimicking physical uh, reality, or or not even just mimicking; it's it's incorrectly mimicking. I mean, it's it's the model in which physical parameters are taking over uh, from the monetary and and uh, judgmental parameters, right? I mean, this is something that is they crowd out, right? Just like you have this in your criticism of Samuelson and and his model, where you crit- criticize this K K thing stuff that you just mentioned. Uh, too bad we didn't we didn't uh, we didn't get the response from him that he promised uh, to criticize you <laughs> would be interesting yeah. to see but uh, but yeah so so um, by by simplifying the economy even using sophisticated mathematics because DSG models are really difficult you have many equations hundreds of them or variables hundreds of variables. Uh, even though you have it, I mean, it's not it's not properly capturing this uh, multi-dimensional element of the production structure and coordination. Therefore, okay, folks. By the way, what Matt's referring to is for two of my papers that were history of thought involving Bombardier and capital theory. One of the referees disclosed his identity, and it was none other than Paul Samuelson. And in one of the papers, I was criticizing him, and he said to the editor go ahead and publish this piece by Murphy because then I want to respond to it. And unfortunately, he died before he ever did that. So that was, you know, and one, Peter, of, one of the tragedies. Peter Holzman would probably, with his black humor, say, the question is, what is the connection? Okay, <laughs> okay so let me just make sure everyone got, because what you just said there was really important. The So the way, and, and I'm sure you've seen this too, Matt, the way Keynesians are trying to explain, so... Let me back up. After the 2008 crisis, there were several types of economists who are coming forward and saying, hey, we actually kind of need to let this bust just run its natural course. Of course, the Austrians were saying that, but there were even other mainstream economists, like I think John Cochran and people like that. And they were saying things along the lines of there was an overinvestment in housing. There were too many workers who were getting pulled into Phoenix and Las Vegas building housing. They need to go somewhere else. We can't just keep housing output 
the same 2010, 11, 12 as it was in 2007, or let's say 2006, because there were, it just doesn't work. There was, there was a, an unsustainable boom there. There's a skills mismatch and it takes time. Arnold Kling was talking about his recalculation story and things like that. And so what the Keynesian said in response was, no, 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 look at potential output, right? We have this the same number. Look at what output was in 2006 or seven and how it was rising unsteadily. We had investment going through those years. So potential output should have kept rising. It's not like everybody, all the engineers forgot you know, their skills or all the computer programmers forgot their skills. We had the same amount of land. It's not like there was a natural disaster that destroyed a bunch of factories or 18 wheelers. And so we should be able to produce as much stuff in 2011 as we did in 2010 or, let's sorry, we should be able to produce as much in 2009 as we did in 2008 and seven and actually a little bit more because we had net investment. If we didn't, we're falling short. So clearly they conclude it's a problem of aggregate demand that there's just, there's not enough being, people aren't trying to buy as much product as we physically are able to produce. And so so that's really where the, and, and again, that's be, the reason they're thinking that is because their framework doesn't even allow for the possibility that maybe there's something in the production structure that allowed the flow of output goods in 2007 to be a certain amount, but then going into 2008, no, it has to come down just physically. Yeah, I mean, uh, I honestly have to say that this thing about real production and production output and the estimations that were done by Congressional Budget Office after 2007, I think it's the most comical thing or close to most comical thing I have ever seen in economics debate. Seriously, because when you, when you look, at, like in 2007, 2008, they were, or in 2008, they were saying that real output is lagging behind potential output and we need monetary and fiscal policy to make sure that the gap disappears, that real output will reach potential output. And then, and then they repeat the whole story for like another seven years. But what is really comical about it is not that, like, it didn't happen that real output reached potential output. It's the other way around. Potential mm-hmm. output reached real output. And, and when you look at the projections that they offer each year from 2007 to 2013, 14, 15, you will see, yeah, the gap is disappearing. But it's not because real output is getting higher and reaching potential output. It's because they change the estimations, because right. they, 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 they adjust downwards the potential output, right? Which, which shows you in general how ridiculous this is and, and right. the estimation. Yeah, so what I think happened was, like in terms of how they come up with their numbers and estimates, I think what happened is, as the, I'm, I'm talking to the audience, I, I know you probably know this, Matt. So it, there was a certain plausibility from their perspective when in 2009 and 2010, when, when the unemployment rate was still pretty high, and then they looked at what real output was, they said, oh, well, if, if only this many people are working and there's whatever, 5% of the labor force wants to work and they just can't get a job right now, clearly we could be producing more, so there must be this gap. But then over time, as the labor markets appeared to recover, and you know we can quibble about how much of that was just people dropping out and so on, but when the official headline unemployment rate came down under the alleged Obama recovery, then after a while, and, and yet real output, like you say, didn't surge upward, after a while they said, well, wait a minute, maybe potential output wasn't that high after all, because at this point, you know, we don't have massive unemployment anymore. The things, it seems like you know, things are back to capacity, and yet real output is, is on a lower trajectory. 
So I don't know if you saw this, man, but what was really hilarious, as you know, I followed Paul Krugman as, as, a, as a side hobby or as a side job. He flip-flopped. It was amazing. In the beginning, he was doing what you said. He said, well, the reason we need mon- you know, looser monetary policy and since there's a liquidity trap and the, the cowards at the Fed are afraid of Ron Paul and blah, 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 and they won't do unconventional means. So we, that's why we need fiscal policy. Like you said, it's because look at Real outputs lower than potential QED. This is due to mon- This is due to aggregate demand. Then later, at like these Jackson Hole conferences and whatever, people were presenting papers showing how the the uh, austerity and blah 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 is causing potential output to grow at a slower rate because now workers their skills are atrophying and stuff like that. And so then Krugman flip flop and said, "We need fiscal and monetary policy because potential output is too low." Right. I mean, so it was whether potential output is is higher or lower. The answer is always this proves the need for fiscal and monetary policy because we're empirical, not like those ideologues who already know the answer ahead of time. I remember this. Yeah, of course. And I remember it thanks to you because I, I'm not really a big <laughs> follower. So I use division of labor. Okay. Someone has it for me. Okay. So why don't I give you one moment here to probably to other economists like what 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 are, what are they going to get why should they get your your book what is that going to give them well i think uh, uh what will be most interesting is this chapter 4 on potential output i believe because this is this is something that is at the core of any macroeconomics and i i'm i'm really disappointed that it's not discussed at length at macroeconomics courses i think it mm-hmm. should be, i mean, i think macroeconomics course should start with it what is potential output, how we understand it, can we measure it, what types of measurement can we use, what type of methods are being used. Uh, one of the methods, by the way, is, is, is just trend estimation. You just do the logarithm or, or, mm-hmm. or just try to estimate from the past trend real output. Uh, the, the, uh, sorry, uh, potential output. So that means that you know, real output is actually uh, producing sort of potential output, not the other way. Not the other way. It's, all, it's admitted in the method itself, right? That, that right. You, you just trace it through the actual data and not by some sort of economic reasoning. Uh, so I would say this is the most relevant and, and important chapter, and I would recommend uh, uh, especially for this reason. Then all the consequences that follow from it, a uh, little bit for long-run macroeconomics dealing with economic development, which is detached from monetary and finance, you know, over 10 decades, two decades, three decades, and so on. Uh, but it's especially relevant when you want to go into the issues of fiscal policy and monetary policy, because then you realize that it's a form of sorcery if you don't have it properly explained, this potential output. So I, w- I would, re- I think that's the strongest thing. The first part uh, about the restriction and so on, this is more wonkish and it's it's mostly for the people who are really, really interested in tiny details of uh, mm. uh, of microeconomic theorizing. But the second part, with this, uh, and then and then things that follow from it, says law, and and then the business cycle, and then what was the fifth one? Oh, oh, the um, uh, quantity theory of money. Yeah, I have a little restatement there, but but I would say this is this is the reason to uh, to reach out for the book. Okay, and maybe just to make sure people are getting that point because it really is critical. Like you mentioned dimension, so. I guess the way they're looking at potential output now, it's like a scalar quantity where it's just a number, like it's a magnitude and always oh, potential output higher or lower. And your point is, well, no, if once you realize output is actually 
if we want to use physics, like a, a vector of different types of goods and services that are flowing, even if you just went to a too good. I mean, that's what I did a lot of stuff, you know, at NYU and the papers I did where Samuelson was the referee on is I just went from a one good framework to a two good framework. That's all you needed to do, right? So in case people are misunderstanding, we're not saying like, oh, any model is too simplistic in the real world. No, we're saying if you just have one good as the output, that's going to mislead you. And I think that's a pretty modest claim that <laughs> most people would realize, yeah, I mean, yeah, your model should have at least two goods. Otherwise, you might miss some nuances in the business cycle. Because then the physical reality is actually surpassing monetary or exchange reality. When you, know, when you just assume one good, for example, and that this good is abundant uh, or not scarce, simply, you will not have prices. I mean, it will be just available. Mm-hmm. And then everything will be driven by its, by its physical properties. Right. Whereas when you just introduce one more, like you did in your paper, just one, just one more thing where you have exchanges happening, everything changes then. Then exchanges mm-hmm. matter, then preferences matter, not just physical yeah. reality. Yeah, yeah. And again, to drive home the point, like just thinking through, like what, what if you're saying, okay, output consists of hammers and nails. And so you could see there, there should be some proportionality there, you know, to year for the potential output rising. And if one year output was just a lot more hammers. And even if you measured it in dollar terms, because it clearly like they, you know, in other words, the mainstream accounts aren't stupid. They understand there's more than one good in the real world. And so they, they do it to, with money prices and they have an index to, you know, account for price inflation. But again, you could imagine it looks like real output surged in a certain year. But if that was all hammers and no nails, you could see how next year it can't possibly be the case that real output's going to grow another 2% it's going to fall off a cliff because everyone's going to say, wait, there's no nails anymore. I mean, something as goofy as that, you can see the problem. And yet they really do reduce all this stuff. Just as you say, they just do a trend typically to say how much should potential output be going up year by year. Hey folks, let's take a pause from the discussion to mention why you should contribute to the Bob Murphy show. I don't want to do ads. I think that would change the flavor of the podcast. And so I rely on support directly provided by you, the listener. And so I'm going to ask you, if you like the show, the content I provide, and you haven't done so already, why don't you uh, give it a whirl? Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks for listening. Okay, so why don't we now switch over from capital theory to political philosophy and science fiction space operas, namely uh, an analysis of Star Wars. So do you have a, a copy of that you want to hold up? Yep, here it is. Okay, so it's the rise and fall of the first galactic empire, Star Wars, and political philosophy. Yep. And what, what, what is that illustration? Because that doesn't look like Palpatine. What is that? Yeah, I mean, that's the cover from Thomas Hobbes' book, yep. The Leviathan, slightly adjusted because you have a planet and the space, you know, to suggest mm-hmm. that it's mostly about the status power. Right, right, great. Okay, so let me mention at the outset, and by the way, folks, of course, you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 125. I'll have links to all this stuff. Uh, let me mention that even though it sounds like a fun topic and some people might think it's it's like frivolous, this was really good. I mean, obviously, I like your capital theory book, but that's to be expected. But this one, it was surprisingly good. And I hope I hope you take that as a combo. I mean, I'm saying I was reading it and I was like, whoa, this isn't just, you know, goofy, like, oh, it's people, everyone has a dark side to them and you got to be careful and not succumb to it. And No, I mean, this is some some serious analysis that for people who like Star Wars and like political philosophy, this is good stuff. So thank you. So I like that. Um, yeah, well, actually, so, to just interrupt you mm-hmm. a little bit in here. Well, you know, I wrote this book because there is a student circle at my university and they asked me to give a lecture about uh, Star Wars and political philosophy, something like this. 
Mm-hmm. But I said, okay, I'll do it. I started to think about it, and I reached out to find some books about this. Mm-hmm. And to my surprise, I realized that virtually most of the stuff that is available in the market doesn't really go into those details. And then right. I said, okay, there is a market teacher there. I mean, I mean, this is, this is you know, there is a an opportunity, Kirchnerian an opportunity on the street to talk about right. things. Right. Because what, what has been published was mostly about, you know, philosophy, theology, and psychology. Psych- psychology, uh, when, when you look at those Star Wars something books, right? You, you right. could not find like this type of approach. Okay, sorry to interrupt. Well, no, I'm glad you did it because it, it surprised me because I remember like for lourockwell.com, I was writing reviews of the prequels when they were coming out. And to me, you know, the obvious, like the stuff corresponding to like the American Civil War and things like that. And it w- was obvious. And yet you're right that apparently there there isn't, you know, people hadn't done that, but now you've done it. So here, let me... Your dedication of this says, to all those who thunderously applaud real-world Sith Lords and to the memory of all those who refuse to clap. So what what, what did you mean by that? Well, that's uh, I was inspired by Hayek's uh, uh, dedication in The Road to Serfdom, right? Uh, dedication to all socialists and uh, people who are, right? That's Road to Serfdom, am I correct? Yeah, I think that's in The Road to Serfdom. Yeah, 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 right. right. That, uh, to all the people who are clapping, to uh, real-world socialists uh, from the past and from the future and so on. And then I really like this quote from Amidala. Uh, so, so basically, well, I have, I have a mixture here, right? Because it, uh, on, on the one hand, this is a dedication to the people who are applauding dictators and statists who are expanding, gov- expanding government powers. And then, of course, to the memory of those who died during this process, right? So who are, who are mm-hmm. the victims of this expansion. Right, and so and of course, there's a reference there that when the uh, what's this Palpatine takes over and becomes what, I forget what Supreme Chancellor or something gets emergency powers and everyone's applauding and Amidala says uh, so this is how liberty dies to thunderous applause something like that so that's what you're referencing right quote yeah 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 okay so why don't we jump through here so you start out and you're going to explain Palpatine's political philosophy, and you say, no doubt we should place him with the Greek sophists. So what do you mean by that? Well, um, I mean, this this uh, Star Wars, uh, Star Wars, yeah, Mickey Mouse story of Greek philosophy is simple. You have Socrates who believed that you have the concept of absolute moral good and evil, and then the big followers of him. And then against it, you have sophists who believed, you know, you cannot really say what is good. You cannot really say what is just. Just uh, then, you have two two Greek sophists arguing that you know what is just is just uh, power, and either it doesn't exist, or in reality you, you have to uh, you can actually um, reject Socrates or this moral absolutism in two ways. You can either say, okay, uh, the good doesn't exist at all, or you can just say, well, you know, in reality, power is always about control, and uh, might is just, as 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 the sim- simplification says. And when you look into Palpatine's actions, you will see that uh, uh, he's actually following Greek sophists on many occasions and, 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 and saying that, you know, absolute good, uh, the concept of absolute good doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. Okay, and a classic example of that. Now, to avoid copyright infringement, I will just, we won't do a clip here, folks. I'll just reproduce it. So there's a scene in the first episode where Palpatine, talking to the people from the Trade Federation, says, this turn of events is unfortunate. We must accelerate our plans. Begin landing your troops on the planet's surface. And then the other guy says, but my lord, is that legal? And he says, I will make it legal. Okay, so 
Again, you can't see me. It's just me talking. So, what what what's going on there, and why did why did you pick that particular thing where he's saying I will make it legal? And again, the way he can do that, folks, is because he's the Sith Lord, like in real life, but behind the scenes, he's also the senator who's serving in the in the Galactic Senate and people don't know originally that it's the same guy. And you, the viewer, only start to learn that over the course of the prequels. Or if you've seen the previous trilogy, right? Um, uh, well, I would say when you, like, if you have a, so, so, uh, if you have an approach like Socrates uh, did to reality, you're thinking about the rules of the game and laws that you have as some forms of conventions reflecting uh, something more fundamental. So when you're thinking about a particular action, that, that this action is perhaps illegal or that you are infringing something, well, you're not only just infringing it uh, without reflection. I mean, you're thinking, okay, that's illegal, but, but how can I justify that, right? How, how do you justify it? So I wouldn't say that if you're a moral absolutist, you always have to obey the law. I mean, that's, that's incorrect because perfect example is Antigone in, uh, in Greek drama. Uh, uh, she was uh, defying. Um, she was she was against the the law, but at the same time in, uh, defending something more fundamental, like natural law. So it's not that every type of illegal action is necessarily wrong. It's just that when you want to reject some form of rule of the game, you need form of rational philosophical reflection. Right? Is it justified? Uh, like what type of uh, values we believe uh, that are important for our social life? And so on. And Palpatine is never doing this. Like he always treats law as a simple tool, like a hammer. Like mm -hmm. we have the game just to play with them. Like and and might is right. Right. So I just want to use my force, like literally my force to uh, to just impose my will onto society. Right. Okay. And then another classic one is later when he says, "I am the Senate, and it's treason." Then. Right. So again, where he's saying that, you know, any he's identifying himself with the Senate and then any attack on him is that hence treason that anyone opposing his his takeover, namely the Jedi in this case, he's construing it as, oh, that's an attack on the Republic. And then that's why we can what is it? Order 66. Yeah, that that's why we can invoke that to go ahead and tell the stormtroop, the, the, the budding stormtroopers, go ahead and, and assassinate all the Jedi and, so, and, and, that, and that's really an interesting thing because, and I'd like you, your thoughts on that, that how did that happen? Because, you know, presumably these guys, you know, grew up thinking, oh, I'm, I'm defending the Republic. In other words, it's not that Palpatine went to each of them and said, hey, you know what we're doing? We're all going to turn evil and we're going to be the bad guys and I want you to go kill the heroes. And they say, oh, okay, yeah, let me go shoot the heroes in the back. That's not, they are being ordered to defend the Republic against these traitors. They are only following orders. Mm -hmm. And Palpatine is only giving the orders. Yeah, it, but I mean, but it's crucial. Yeah, they from their perspective, the orders make sense. That oh no, I mean, I'm a I'm supposed to defend the Republic as a as a you know armed person, you know as a, as a troop, and I'm being told that these guys are committing treason. So of course I would need to kill them because they're they're traitors. And this is what I like about uh, George Lucas also because at one point in one of the interviews he says that. The Empire is not an anti-republic. The Empire is the Republic. Like, it's not mm -hmm. like you have a suddenly monster taking over. It's just a natural consequence of progressive bureaucratic democratic republic, which is completely inefficient. Like, it's a nat and natural end result, right? It's not, it's not something 
you know, it's not a monster, uh, that it, it's not, it's not a, a, um, something, Deus ex machina. It's not, it's, it's not outside. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's natural consequences. This is what Lucas had in mind, even though prequels were not, uh, like they have many, many deficiencies, but this is, this is really smart. The way, like the, the sketch is really smart. He wants to show, uh, he, he wants to, he wants us to see a form of political drama showing how this institution that we call Republic naturally, almost naturally evolves into the empire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you said that because it's on the one hand, I understand people who mock the prequels as being terrible, but on the other hand, it's like, okay, what they did, like the script and what they do is amazing, you know, to show this step-by-step transformation, you know, the obvious stuff of how does the cute little Anakin Skywalker turn into Darth Vader? So they show that. But then I think more importantly, in terms of like politics and what's the broader lesson that I thought Lucas was trying to show us is to show how you've, you've got some manipulative characters behind the scenes and how they can rally people and, and and stir up, you know, war fever and transform a peaceful republic that was democratic, you know, obviously they like democracy and so on, and turn it into a galactic tyrannical empire. And it was kind of plausible along the way and, and how he did it. Like, for example, you got another thing in here where you got a quote where Palpatine says, I will not let this republic be split in two. And so, you, know, so the, you got the whole separatist thing. And of course, behind the scenes, when you realize that Palpatine is fueling this stuff, you know, he's giving orders to both camps. So he's doing that on purpose. I'm, uh, so I, I like that. And also to me, that opening sequence of episode one, I think I went and saw episode one in the theater like six times when it came out just for that opening sequence. I, I love Liam Neeson. I like you and McGregor. <laughs> I saw it 10 times. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. So you and I together probably fueled 13% of the ticket sales for that thing. But, and then, you know, the, the, the rest of it was downhill from there. But I mean, that opening thing was, was amazing. So I, I think people kind of sort of take that for granted that, you know, and they, you know, they knew what they had to go with it. But so I'm wondering, um, first of all, like, did, did you think they were good movies or like, are you saying they did a lot and yeah, the movies though per se weren't great. Yeah, I mean, as movie, like I would say that old classical trilogy is, is the best one. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, nothing, can really compete with this, especially part five and part six, that is the right, airstrike right. back and, and return of the Jedi. I mean, just, just is, they are just brilliant as a storytelling thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I mean, they are great because movies are about storytelling. That's why right. they are the best. But as a, uh, as a story, uh, as a political story, as a description of something serious about social issues and political issues, the prequels are the best. I mean, it's hard mm-hmm. to compete with them. But, you know, it's, it's like comparing two different lectures, right? So you're comparing, for example, I don't know, boring Ludwig von Mises, who is not really entertaining and teaching you about all those little details that are not so fun. And then, and then at the other spectrum, you have, I don't know, Frédéric Bastiat, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, presenting you some, uh, some uh, economic harmonies. And probably Bastiat was way more fun. I mean, you have right. more storytelling, you have candle makers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but at the same time, you would say still Mises is more boring, but way deeper. So I have the same yeah. the same perception of uh, older trilogy versus the prequels. It's just mm-hmm. older trilogy is more fun, more entertaining, definitely better dialogue. Uh, you are le- much less bored at times. Uh, also better acting, mm, despite the limitations. But the prequels, 
are still winning way, way off with the uh, with with the political story in there and philosophical mm-hmm. story. Okay, so let me and I I totally agree with that, right? That there wouldn't be prequels if there weren't if it weren't for the original trilogy, and if it had been vice versa, they might not have bothered to make the. You know, the, the people wouldn't have said, I need another three of these if they had just started with the first three, like episodes one, two, and three. Um, okay, let me ask you, so about the return of this quote about I will not let this republic be split into. So to me, it seemed like the the connection with Lincoln uh, and, you know, the, the Union armies and blah, blah. And, and yet I have seen, so I was writing when I was doing my movie reviews at LRC, I remember some people were, I was saying this is obvious. And also there were libertarian types who were mad when episode, I guess it was two came out saying, oh, Lucas is trying to show that the separatists are bad. And I was like, no, that's not what he's, you know what I mean? Like, I was like, no, that's clearly not what he's doing. He, he's showing how they're being used and help teams funding him to justify, you know, the, um, you know, what, how, how the Republic's going to turn into the empire. But somebody said, I've never, that they thought I was, I was reading into that, that, that when they heard Lucas, like Lucas was saying he was inspired by the Vietnam war and they never saw Lucas directly comparing this stuff to the U S civil war. Have you ever seen that? Or do you, you get what I'm asking? Yeah. Well, we, I mean, you know, well, to defend this view a little bit against what you said, um, initially, uh, and that would make prequels way, prequels way, way, way better. Initially, the idea was that Amidala is secretly joining the separatists. That mm-hmm. would be brilliant, right? Uh, she's supposed to secretly join the separatists. They even had the concept. You remember that silly discussion on the balcony? Oh, you're so beautiful. Oh, no, it's because I'm so in love with you. No, it's because I'm so in love with you. Also, the right. love made you blind. You remember this, right? Yeah. So they, I tried to forget. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, in the script, when he leaves, Anakin leaves, the guy from the separatist movement appears on the balcony, like after the discussion. And it was supposed mm-hmm. to indicate that Amidala already realized that he's a bad guy. I mean, the, the, uh, that uh, Anakin is a bad guy and we have to get rid of him. And she would even conspire to kill him. You know, but that would be apparently, you know, that would be too, that would make the reality too complex, too similar to Game of Thrones. And they dropped it. So I would say, yeah, they wanted to simplify the separatist thing and just say that, you know, separatists are just, you know, a bunch of silly people. They don't understand that we need the Republic. And this is one, this is the only dictatorial totalitarian element in whole story about which Lucas is not really clear. Because about everything else, about all the expansions of power, he's quite clear what is wrong and what is right. But in case of uh, the existence of the Galactic uh, Republic, like he sort of like intuitively likes the idea. He's not questioning it, right? That's why this, you know, that's why I have Hobbesian monster on the cover mm-hmm. is that he doesn't really like, like many artists, like how do you recognize the great art well, you recognize it by the fact that the artist does not fully understand what he or she did in this work, right? Mm-hmm. And and this is this, this perfectly applies to Star Wars. I think Lucas did not realize that he actually uh, unintentionally criticized the idea of centralized government, like the government in the whole universe. I mean, this is so ridiculous. We cannot even have the world government. We are so different, fortunately, in on our planet to make the world government. But then he envisions the government in, in galactic space. 
And he thinks that we should have one Hobbesian monster directing our social political life through this bureaucratic management and so on and so on. So I think he he, he doesn't take uh, the step forward to realize that this is unnecessary. And actually, Republic has to fall, but not in order to be taken over by the empire. You just have to just dissolve it and get rid of the monopolistic power. And right, let me, he mm-hmm. does not want to show, because if he did show this, he would have to show that separatists are maybe not fully right, but are leaning towards the proper thing. And then he could be like, I, I don't understand American circumstances. Like, I don't know what's going on in your country. But probably if he did that, they would say he's pro-slavery or something, right? Right, right. Okay, so let me just, so you're you're saying even though Lucas clearly is showing how um, Palpatine was using the separatists and fueling them and actually giving them orders in order to provoke this conflict with then justified the creation of the clone army and blah, 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 and that, that you know, the empire could not have been created had it not been for the clone wars and the, you know, the existence of the separatists, like society needed that scary enemy. And you, but if I'm understanding, you're saying you think Lucas was okay with the idea of saying, yeah, the separatists really are not good, that you shouldn't want to break away from the galactic Republic. The Republic is good so long as it's democratic and every planet has its, its voice in the galactic Senate and there's rules and a constitution da, 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 da that it was just a, you know hijacked by this evil Sith Lord. And if only we could have kept the right people I as chancellor, so. then we would have been okay. I, yeah, I mean, I mean, otherwise, why, why simplify it so much and, and make Dooku mm. and, and, and Palpatine directly responsible for the separatist movement? I mean, why do it? I, I know Palpatine, Palpatine has to be behind all this, right? He has to, he has to, mm. he has to be the ultimate puppet master of everything as we know from horrible episode nine, but, uh, but you know, I mean, you just, it's not necessary, right? I, I, if, if you wanted to show separatists in a slightly better light, uh, or at least give them, give them a deeper meaning, like, like root them in mm-hmm. something like, like you had the Gungans in the first episode, right? right? Right. The Gungans were typical separatists. They wanted to separate not only from the galactic, uh, Republic. They, they also wanted to, separate from, uh, what's their name? Um, um, you know, Amidala's kingdom, whatever. Naboo? Naboo, right. They wanted to just, you know, live separately on the other part of Naboo, away from, from this modernized civilization run by, uh, run by monarchy. Right. Right. So, uh, so, uh, I mean, why not make it this way, you know, show separatists, you know, or like Wookiees, right. Interested mm-hmm. in going about their own business, not joining this huge, uh, absurd uh, uh, um, bureaucratic management, right? Mm-hmm. But but he didn't choose this way, and, uh, and and he preferred to, you know, make them puppets of Dooku and and Palpatine, ultimately bad guys, right? Yeah, right. Okay, so let me just repeat the one thing I was asking: Have you ever seen people compare it to the? Because to me, it looks so obvious that he was putting words in Palpatine's mouth that sounded like Lincoln. And so, you know, having read like the work of Tom DiLorenzo and stuff, I know how, oh yeah, even though Lincoln is revered in U.S. circles on paper, it's like, gee, he kind of did some bad stuff and, you know, transformed the nature of the U.S. federal government, uh, you know, from that point forward. And so I was wondering if if there was, if, if you have ever seen, like, did, did anyone ever ask Lucas about that or has, have you seen 
and you're looking at the secondary literature, not really. does anyone else make this comparison? No, no, not really. I didn't encounter that. Uh, but let me just say, you know, I expected like, this is this is also some flaw in in how Anakin is transformed into Darth Vader. Mm-hmm. But I was expecting, but that would require, since again, American society is specific. But you know, it would be really great if Lucas. Um, uh, decided uh, that Palpatine will be the ultimate, not the Chancellor, but uh, the Emperor. Mm-hmm. Becomes the Emperor. Uh, and part of the reason is that the Old Republic did not manage to abolish slavery. Right? right. And then Vince Anakin, you see, this is why ah. you're right. Because those lazy bureaucrats did not abolish slavery. We will do this by building an empire and you will free all the people from slavery mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. subjecting all those separatist movements and all those independent political places under our rule so we can introduce rule of law, republic credits, and and get rid of uh, slavery once and for all. Uh, but he didn't want to do this because then, again, they would say that he's making fun of Lincoln, right? Right. Huh, okay, that's interesting. I didn't think of that. So I guess in the Star Wars universe, to be in the Republic, like slavery is presumably illegal in the Republic, and it's just on Tatooine, that's outside the jurisdiction of the Republic. That's why, yeah, your Republic credits aren't good, are no good here. I only take money, real money, yeah. Okay, and, and then, and of course, and he could have said to him too, like, remember, even Qui-Gon told you, I didn't come here to free slaves. So those Jedi, they're the noble and stuff, but they just sit there and are content to let your mom just sit there, even though they had the power, of course, that's you know, Qui-Gon clearly could have freed his mother if he wanted to, and he chose not to. Absolutely ridiculous. And he's cheating at the game of dice, right? I mean, if you're cheating at the game of dice, just steal right. slaves. Come on. I mean, just... Yeah. <laughs> so you're talking about when what's-his-face throws the dice and, and Qui-Gon, like, moves his hand to yeah. use the force I mean, to... I mean, yeah, yeah. If you're cheating at this game, just, you know, just just free the mother. Just don't ask this 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 funny guy. Just, you know, <laughs> free her, and, and we're, we're done, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So let's go. You had a great point here. The section is called Creation of the New Secret Service. And you're talking about, you know, uh, secret services are beyond direct legal control. And then you say, here's the quote, Order 66 again. Out of nowhere, we learn about the loyal army of soldiers receiving very secret instructions directly from the chancellor himself to kill off every single enemy of the Republic, every Jedi. So just for the benefit of people who either didn't see it or... So, and this is one of the things I wanted to see in the in the prequels is because we know from, you know, the, the original tr- trilogy that there was a time when there were a bunch of Jedi, not just Yoda and Ben and then training Luke. And then we know somehow Vader and the Emperor were involved in killing them all off. And so here's actually how it happened. And as you're saying, Matt, it was just the Chancellor when he's always treason and all of a sudden he just gives this order. So like they had all been briefed. In other words, the the people that we would later on call stormtroopers, they already knew, okay, that when I give the order, you got to go assassinate all the Jedi. And yet it's not that that presumably was debated in the annals of the Senate and that all the, you know, all the senators knew about, oh yeah, this, this plan that we have in place to, to murder all the Jedi. So, so do you want to elaborate on that? No, I mean, it's just, it's nicely done. And, and another thing uh, also uh, that you will see that most dictators, they need to have their own secret service to impose uh, to impose their rule, usually. 
Like they, they need mm. to have their loyal soldiers that they secretly give special priorities and then special powers, um, you know, to just uh, ignore parts of the law so that they can expand and they can be loyal and they can get rid of all those uh, political leaders that are against you. And this is the same thing that happened in in, uh, in Third Reich. I mean, before Third Reich, right? I mean, when, when Hitler went to power, this is also what happened. They they made sure uh, they made sure they wanted to they made sure they assassinated the people who will be against them during the voting also right mm-hmm. and yeah and you go on to say a typical prime minister under typical democratic procedures cannot really lead a perfect conspiracy it is just too difficult to pull off since there are formal relations and rules that make it visible to some yeah. so again the point being when Palpatine actually takes out the Jedi, you know we talked earlier about how I was saying he had to cast it as treason because otherwise you know the soldiers might have, if he just said, hey, you know, these Jedi that are up, you know, the upholders of peace and the rule of law and the galaxy and justice, go shoot them in the back. They might say, well, wait a minute, why would I do that? But if it's no, they're, it's treasonous, they're traitors against the Republic. That's, you know, to motivate the simple-minded stormtroopers. But your point is this was a secret plan. This wasn't some official thing that was debated openly because clearly it wouldn't have passed. Like if it had been out in the open, you know, people would have criticized it. Um, it reminds me too of, I don't know if you thought of this parallel, but you know, George Orwell's Animal Farm? Sure. Re- remember how, uh, what's the pig's name? Napoleon, the, the bad pig early on. Like the, there's the young puppies and they take them and just, and they disappear. And then later in the story, they bring in these like vicious dogs. And that's how, you know, the, the, the ruling clique of pigs actually enforces their rule is because they've separately raised these attack dogs to be loyal to them. Oh, I didn't remember this. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, and so you know, that's, it's a great point because you kind of forget as a reader you kind of forget about the dog the little puppies that they took away and then they bring them back and whoa and so that that's partly how the the bad pigs you know get their rule is because they got these dogs that are loyal to them that they've separately raised this story is even smarter than i thought than i thought i forget about this i forgot about (laughs) so there's a lot in there yeah you should read it again i read it again my son had to read it it for school yeah i read it in in elementary school and then i just Mm -hmm. didn't want to read it anymore but oh i yeah i seriously if go and for folks listening at home if you if you've read animal farm like as a kid or something because your teacher may go read it again i think you'd be like wow there's a lot of wisdom packed into there okay um let's see here i wanted to let me just jump ahead uh, uh, okay <laughs> and by the way folks there, there's all kinds of like you make all sorts of movie references not just the, but like references to the godfather and things so this is it's a very clever book folks and i'm i'm telling you if if you like the content here i encourage you to go get again bobmurphyshow.com/125 to get this thing because it's it's very well written and there's all sorts of little allusions but so you say here uh let me read a little bit and then i'll let you sure. go ahead only now at the end do you understand. Anakin was actually filling a specific role in the first three episodes. You're welcome. Palpatine needed a whining, weak boy who was not very smart and didn't have a great philosophical understanding of the Force. The boy needed to possess great physical skills and a ruthless character. Da-da-da-da. He needed to lack strong morals but be keen to act on emotion just as the dark side recommends. He also had to be easily manipulated. Such a vulnerable man requires only praise and a pat on the back to convince him to be obedient. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Okay, and then where I love where you're going with this is to say that partly explains the shallowness of the opera scene in episode three. And I'm skipping a little bit. Some of you, so here, Matt, you're talking to your readers. Some of you are inclined to say to the director, I know it was you, George, you broke my heart, but sorry, it was not him. It was Palpatine who perfectly knew what he wanted to achieve. 
Okay. And so here you're saying like some of the scenes that were just cringy when people are watching, like the dialogue seems so stilted and oh my God, this is stupid. And your point was, well, no, if, if there had been clever banter and repartee between, you know, and, and great philosophical disputes between Palpatine and Anakin, Palpatine couldn't have turned such a person into Darth Vader. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he might've, I mean, he could have been defeated by him at some point, right? This is what happened to Darth Plagueis. Right. Darth Plagueis apparently was a uh, was a very very smart person, but uh, uh, the Re- remind people who that is in case they okay, haven't well, seen this. He was the teacher of uh, of uh, Palpatine, right? Of Darth Sidious, right? He, he was the teacher, and he was assin- assassinated by uh, by um, by, by Palpatine, right? So Palpatine was way smarter and stronger. Uh, part of the plan, how to take over the Republic, was was designed by Darth Plagueis. Apparently, something we learn uh, outside of the movies. But in any case, that was the point. And 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 the Scythian rule, the Palpatine's rule, is that he needs a soldier that will follow the orders, and that's why you need an an intellectually weak follower. Right? This is part of the because that's from the chapter right about uh, about. The worst going on top. This is something that Hayek mm-hmm. this in wrote to serve them. Like you, you right. weakest, the weakest people, intellectual weak people, going on top, so they follow orders. Like Yezhov uh, was just getting instructions from Stalin who to kill and how to kill and as efficiently and as fast as possible. And he was not thinking about you know the nuances of bourgeoisie or nuances of of the Bolshevik revolution and so on, so on. You just have to follow orders because if you do. If you do have a philosophical reflection, you are a potential threat to the ultimate monopoly, right? That's why in in, in all cases of, of full dictatorship, whether you go to China or Russia or Cambodia, you will always see uh, leaders killing other leaders as fast as possible. Uh, I mean, why do you think Stalin wanted to, uh, uh, you know, trace all the competition, all the potential intellectual competition? Because they could actually you know, constrain his power a little bit. So the same could happen to Palpatine. If Anakin was, for example, as smart as Tim or, or intellectually sophisticated and so on. Uh, but this is not what Palpatine wanted. Like he didn't need a true, like smart advisor, someone who can take over. He just mm-hmm. needed someone to do the dirty job. Right. Okay. And so your point is, besides that insight, that that's what, like, you, in other words, you think, it wasn't just oh geez that kid, was his like Hayden Christensen or something yeah. like that. I think the the, the actor who plays the yep. older Anakin. Um, by the way, it, I didn't realize that you, the the actor who did the young Anakin. Apparently, he's he like left acting like he was Jake like Lloyd. teased oh, and yeah. stuff in school and whatever and people because he was also in some other movie with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I forget where he's the, the kid. What's that? Jingle all the way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But so I, when I realized who that was, I went and looked him up on Wikipedia, and apparently it's it's a sad story that he, yeah, like got te- teased and stuff. Like people were making fun of him, and I and I actually I thought he was okay as the little Anakin, but you know, yeah, he was okay, and he turned out the uh, as a good grown up. So that's the happy ending, right? So yeah, okay. So anyway, but back to the what I was saying is that I think some of us, and I would have included myself until I read your thing there that the where Anakin is the like the moody teenager and you know and in many ways I'm I'm better than Obi-Wan and he's he's threatened and you know and he's just being pouty yeah <laughs> that that came off as just, like it was just like I didn't even want to watch those scenes like get to a different scene you know get get the get Palpatine back on camera here but it was you're saying that they he had to be like that 
Yeah. Like it, it's, it, if it had been somebody who was more in depth and, and, and nuanced and philosophically sound, it, it, the transition wouldn't have worked. Yeah, and we see this in the discussion on the grass, right? When they talk about democracy, you know, that Anakin is saying, you know, we need to have some form of, I mean, we, we need to act. We shouldn't have disputes. We shouldn't have discussions, right? So this whole discussion about democracy is a little bit silly too. But this mm. is how it has to be. I mean, Anakin has to be very, very weak intellectually. Also, it's perhaps slightly unintentionally show us that Jedi education system is flawed because they have no, they don't teach economics, they don't teach, uh, <laughs> they don't teach politics. I mean, these things should be taught, but they, apparently they don't do this. They only teach them, you know, all those tricks with lightsabers. Right. I wonder if uh, if Yoda understands comparative advantage. <laughs> You know, because he is wise, but he never talks about it, so you yeah. don't know. Okay, so are there other? So I have just hit the things where I was looking at the book that I wanted to, to pull out. Is there any other things that that you uncovered that you think you know? In other words, libertarian anarcho-capitalist thinkers who also love the Star Wars. Is there anything that you noticed in there that you, that was a revelation to you? Uh, yeah, w what I really like and what is also touched upon in uh, Last Jedi is the fact that uh, is this Lord Acton's uh, um, warning that all power is corruptive, right? And absolute power corrupts absolutely, but all power is corrupted, and it's also demonstrated in the case of the Jedi in the first episode, mm -hmm. right? And uh, some of it is in the deleted scenes. One deleted scene is when, when Mace Windu is discussing with Yoda whether they should report to the Senate that their powers are weakened, but that they say that they decide not to. Uh, so they already, you know, try to uh, dodge the. Hey, can, can you? So what? I think I've seen that. So what is it that they, they are acknowledging that like they can tell there's a Sith Lord around, but they just like they can't yeah. sense it and they're yeah. concerned like. Our, our abilities with the force are weak and should we report? And then they say, no, don't, yeah. because that there might is, freak the Senate out. Well, yeah. let's not there let is, them know our weakness. Yeah, there is, there is some little scene like this. Uh, maybe I, I'll try to find it so we can put the link if you want to. We can try to put the link uh, okay. the video with, with the textbooks. And then uh, then you have Mace Windu arguing against her trial and arresting Palpatine, which basically creates what basically creates Darth Vader. Because then if you just arrested him, like it, it was supposed to happen, then, you know, uh, Anakin would probably not join the Sith. Uh, well, we don't know what would happen, but in any case, his respons responsibility was to actually capture him. Okay, and and so by the way, folks, so Mace Windu is the one that Samuel Jackson was playing, and he's like, is, is powerful, even perhaps a better fighter than Yoda, so he was the one that goes over to take Palpatine into custody once, uh, what's his name? Anakin goes to them and says, hey, this guy's the Sith Lord. And he says, if what you're telling us is true, then you will have earned my trust. He goes there. And then your point is that he doesn't go there to eventually arrest him. It's like, no, we just got to kill this guy yeah. because he's too powerful. And then... He's too dangerous to be kept alive. Right. And so then Anakin, partly it's out of his, you know, knowing, wait a minute, that's not how the Jedi are trained, but also because he knows, wait a minute, this guy told me he could keep Amidala from dying. And so I don't want him to get killed by Mace Windu. But your point being, Mace Windu died in the course of trying to go assassinate someone he thought was too dangerous to get a fair trial. Yeah, and that's the same, actually, that's the same quote, right? Palpatine says the same thing in, the, in this episode about Dooku. He's too dangerous to be kept alive. Kill him, Anakin. Right, right. It's the very same thing. It's just repeated by Mace Windu, right? Mm-hmm. 
So, and then you have this, well, what is going on in there, right? So uh, they are drunk with power, the Jedi. They are drunk with power, and this is what, uh, this is probably the best, yeah, it is the best line in the newer trilogy, where Luke says, you know, I want Jedi to end. But why? It's because they were corrupted by the power. Because uh, they had the hubris, they thought that, you know, that they are immune to the problems of power, because they actually allowed Darth Plagueis to arise, and so on, so on. They actually trained Darth Vader, because they were so uh, mm-hmm. fine in their own thinking. And this is because they believe that they are flawless. But, you know, every every kind of power is dangerous, and this also applies to the Jedi. This is what I like about the prequels, because Lucas cre- clearly wanted to show this, that the Jedi, right. the Jedi lost their way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also even the the fact that the, the Palpatine, the, the people he trains are always ex-Jedi. Like, that's something, too. Right. You know, even Count Dooku, right, was used to be a Jedi, and then so it's it, there is something there that, well, gee, why is it that the, the most evil guy in the galaxy keeps recruiting from our own ranks? That's kind of a, you know... That's something. What, what should we do? And go talk to human resources about that. Maybe we should, re, you know, do some more vetting when we hire people. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I, I guess we're getting close here on the on the time. Uh, do, any closing? Th- what would have been good is if Lucas showed how there was an unsustainable structure of production, and that's why the Republic had to fall. That really would have tied everything together. Well, there was. They couldn't make up uh, the second Death Star on time, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. Okay, well, thank you, Matt, so much for uh, sharing your thoughts and your time here. So again, folks, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 125. I'll put links to all of Matt's, the books that we've discussed and maybe some of these other fun things about Samuelson and and Krugman and Flip Flop and, and Mace Windu. And uh, so, so thanks, Matt, and uh, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great fun. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com. <laughs>